Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Friends, we are so happy to be here with Hira Hecht Kohler, who is a first-rate educator, attorney, and entrepreneur, and is just a delightful human being involved in so many different Jewish projects, inspiring and educating near and far. And today, it's a real delight to be able to learn with her on the power of the image, photographic thoughts on Torah values. Shira, thank you for joining us. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Rishmali, for the opportunity to be able to learn and think together with you and everyone for joining us today. And for those of you that are tuning in afterwards, it's really a pleasure and a delight to be part of this learning community. Um, I also just want to thank Pam. Thank you so much for all of the organizing, the logistical help and the arrangements with our learning today. Uh, before we start, just a couple of housekeeping, I guess. Uh, Zoom is an incredible platform to connect so many different communities and learners, but the distance always feels a little bit palpable and lacking in intimacy. So maybe just to add a bit of intimacy today so we can get to know one another over this virtual platform. Uh, I guess I'll just ask everyone, you don't have to, but you can just put in the chat where you are physically located. And perhaps also since our theme today is about the power of the image, um, perhaps if you can capture an image in your mind that is speaking to you right now, whether it's something on your desk, in your proximity, or just an image in your mind. And, you know, if you wanted to just put that in the chat so that we can, we can feel a little bit like we are in the same space despite the distance. Um, one other housekeeping piece, we, I won't be monitoring the chat as we go. I think others will be monitoring it, but we'll learn together for about 40 minutes and then we'll open up for, for some conversation and discussion and question. And so we'll be able to look and catch up on some of the chat then. Um, okay, so let's start. Let's jump right in. Our topic today is what I titled Power of the Image or Photographic Thoughts on Torah Values, where we'll be looking at um, contemporary themes refracted through a values-based lens, one in particular that draws upon our classical Jewish sources, but in an interdisciplinary and integrative way. And it, it, it speaks, the whole topic today, just to give you a sense of myself, I'm an educator in New York City, my hand is in a lot of different thankfully, um, blessedly educational projects. But this is a topic that actually speaks um, to my core as an artist and, and not so much as a professional artist, but really just as somebody who loves photography, both taking pictures, but also reflecting on what images can do to us. Uh, so it's coming from my own artistic and visual sensibilities. I'm not coming again as a professional, but as an educator, as a practitioner on the ground, and someone who explores the intersection between texts and values, ideas, and people, and the ways that the old and the new, right, can be in dialogue with one another. So the collection of sources and ideas that we'll be reflecting upon today is, is experiential in many dimensions, right? Sort of the way we think about images, the way we capture, frame, deconstruct, present, and the values that are at the core, which in many ways are modern questions, 
right? With all the platforms that are available to us 24 hours a day. And there are many, many questions that rely heavily on the power of the image. And yet some of those modern questions and values are deeply, deeply rooted in our sacred texts as they're issues that relate to the core of, of being human, right? The sense of what it is to be a human being in the world. So we'll be looking at that intersection through three or four topics. Three we'll, we'll kind of look at briefly and then one we'll develop um, in more detail. I am going to share my screen now with you so that we can put this slideshow up. And you should all, Pam, I guess also, if you want to just drop it in the chat, there's a link to this presentation so that you can follow along. Um, and this is what we'll be using as our source sheet throughout. So sort of one of my pedagogical practices is to open a conversation with guiding and framing questions that hopefully will loom above our conversation. Today, we won't answer all of them, but they're designed to sort of be there. They're questions that are engaged with by Jewish educators, by rabbis, philosophers, ethicists, photographers, um, lawmakers, uh, writers. And in many ways, they kind of can frame our conversation today. So we're, we're just gonna open up with a few overarching questions when it comes to imagery and the power of the images. So we'll walk through this together. First question, what makes images powerful? What is at the core of images that make them powerful? Right? Can an image get us to move uh, or to act in a particular kind of way? Do we do things for the experience or in order to document it, not necessarily a binary, perhaps both. What message do we send when we crop photos, when we add filters? How can images democratize experiences and build communities? How much control do we have over the presentation of our own images? And then how does this relate to the core concept of human dignity? Do we present ourselves in authentic ways? It's the last source that we'll be looking at in detail together in the Talmud. And how can Torah values inform the answers to these questions, right? Where do we see the same struggles and core existential issues expressed in classical, biblical, and rabbinic texts? So we're gonna jump right into our first topic and our first text, which I title The Power of the Image. So when we think about images, we're gonna start with some photographers or really philosophers and writers reflecting on photography before we move to our Judaic text to frame the sense of the power of an image. And I open with a quote here from um, the French literary critic and philosopher Roland Barthes in his work, Camera Lucida, which is, a wonderful short work, which is at once a reflection on photography and also a eulogy for his late mother. And it kind of uses imagery and the role specifically of the spectator, the one taking the picture, and what core kind of um, prompts the spectator and the photographer has in, in taking pictures. So uh, just to open with in this glum desert, suddenly a specific photography reaches me. It animates me and I animate it. So that is how I must name the attraction which makes it exist, an animation. The photograph itself is in no way animated. I do not believe in lifelike photographs, but it animates me. This is what creates every adventure. 
And he continues, the anticipated essence of the photograph could not, in my mind, be separated from the pathos of which, from the first glance, it consists. You can continue. Um, you can continue reading that on your own. I also want to just pick up on that sense of pathos from this short excerpt from Susan Sontag, an American writer, a literary critic, public intellectual, and her work on photography. She too, and I know taking just certain pieces out doesn't do justice to their work, but our core is the Jewish text. I want to use these texts as a launching point and a starting point. But in her work on photography, she too speaks of the pathos, right? And she writes, it's a nostalgic time right now, and photographs actively promote nostalgia. Photography is an elegiac art, a twilight art. Most subjects photographed are, just by virtue of being photographed, touched with pathos. And so when we think about this, um, the ways that pictures stir our complex emotions and they prompt us to reflect, to think about the past, to be engaged with the present, to dream about what awaits in the future, they also prompt us to act. And that's the first source that I wanted to engage together with you. What does it mean for an image to get us to act? In fact, when we think about it today, right? when we think about hashtags attached to photographs, they, they can prompt revolutions, right? build communities, affect far-reaching changes. We know that from the work that the virtual Beit Midrash and Rav Shmuley does, right? the idea that seeing a picture of the lines on someone's face can move us in ways and stir us in emotions so we can empathize with the plight of others. And they're, they're charged with emotion. And in many ways, those images become iconic and a sense of our collective identity, often shocking us into right, shocking our collective conscience. And that Susan Sontag writes a lot about in a critical way, but in the positive way, we can say when we see an image, it moves us, right? And it demands that we look and it should demand and it demands that we act. And so with this, I wanted to open with that power of an image to get us to act from a source that brings us back in the Babylonian Talmud and to a totally different, right? An era pre-photographs, but the ideas of images getting us to move, right? The pathos appealing to our emotions, our imaginations, our sympathies to behave in certain ways is deeply rooted in Jewish text. And I was kind of in all of this working backwards, obviously, right? My interest is in photography and the current ethos and tempo of values-based questions in photography. And so then I kind of looked back and said, okay, where in our Jewish sources and our Jewish tradition might we have the same values embedded despite the fact that there was no photography. Um, and here I bring us to a source from the Babylonian Talmud Masachat Sota, Daflamin Vav Amud Bet 36b, which is discussing an encounter in the book of Genesis. So it's the Talmud taking us back to analyzing the narrative of Joseph in the house of Potiphar, for whom he was working early in the Joseph narratives in Egypt, prior to him going to jail. And the Talmud here is discussing a particular question of Kiddush Hashem, um, sanctification of God's name. And in that context, the Talmud talks about this incident of Joseph being seduced by the wife of Potiphar, right? That takes place 
Genesis 39. We're not going to read together, but it is a really fascinating chapter actually to read. I just reread it um, this morning in preparation, just to kind of right, give us a sense of where we're at. And in this context, we'll read in a second in the text, the rabbinic sages in the Talmud, Rav and Shmuel are in disagreement as to whether in this case, Joseph intended to have a sexual relationship or not, right? Was this a case where his resolve um, cracked, right? And he was not intending, or there was actually intention for him to have this relationship with the wife of Potiphar. In the Talmud, that relates to questions of what we call Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. And the discussion there is public, private, right? What, how does that um, play out when we talk about the sanctification of God's name? That is all background to our question of imagery. And I will read the source in the Hebrew and Aramaic, and then we'll read it together in English. So Tana Debe Rabbi Ishmael, Otoha Yom, Yom Chagam Haya, Vahachukulan Lebeitz Avoda Kochavim Shalahem, Vihiamralahen Cholahi, Amra, Ain Liyom Shenis Kakli Yosef Kayom Hazeh. Right, that day, we'll stop in the middle and translate that line. That day, this particular day that it's talking about in Genesis 39, when Joseph is seduced, the Talmud says, that day was their idolatrous festival, meaning everyone was gone. It doesn't tell us this in the text, but the Talmud is extrapolating and, and, um, and giving us a sense of context of what was going on when this event happened. And it says, right, that day was their idolatrous festival, and they all went to the pagan temple. And if we add the context, it's the day that the Nile overflowed, they worshiped the Nile, and everyone was gone out of the house. And the Talmud says, and she, the wife of Potiphar, did not go, claiming to be sick. And she said, I have no better day than today for Joseph to sleep with me. Again, all of this is not in the text in Genesis, it's all the, the analysis of the rabbinic stages. And it's, this is a quote from the text. It says, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Back to the Hebrew for a moment. What happens at that moment? She is there seducing him. She catches him by his garment. She says, sleep with me. And the Talmud tells us, and at that very moment, it was the image of his father, Jacob, right, that came and appeared to him in the window and said to him, Joseph, uh, Jacob says to Joseph, Yosef, your brothers are destined to be inscribed on the ephod, on the priestly garments, and you are among them. Do you want your name to be erased from among them and be called a companion of harlots? Immediately, his bow was firmly in place. That's a quote in the text from later in Genesis that Jacob uses to bless Yosef. And here it's just used as, an, as a euphemism to say that his desire for her subsided consciously and he did not allow himself to fall into the temptation the sexual temptation of the wife of Potiphar. I'm going to stop the share for a moment so I can see your faces. Why I open with this source is because in so many ways this source is all about that image right a picture a power of an image to get us to act. 
According to the plain meaning of the Talmud, what we read, it's the image of Jacob that appears to Joseph. And again, this is in the rabbinic mind and the rabbinic imagination. Jacob, his father, appears to him. And, and the Hebrew word actually that's used in the Talmud in this passage, diukno shalaviv, right? Diukan, his image, in fact, stems from the Greek word icon. Right. And so it's not just right, do you know an icon have a similar root? And so it is not just saying that, you know, any image stops Joseph in his tracks and held him back from acting upon his desires, but it was an iconic image. And so the Talmud here is kind of putting that picture in Joseph's mind and telling us that's actually what got him to move. That's what got him to stop. That's what got him not to cede to the temptation, the sexual temptation that was right in front of him. And expanding the scope of that imagination, you don't have the source in front of you, but I'll share it with you. There is a midrash, a homiletic interpretation on Genesis Rabbah, and it's called Midrash Yufei Toar, which actually suggests that it wasn't the image of Jacob that moved Joseph, but actually his own reflection in the window. And by the way, parenthetically, there's no glass yet invented in ancient Egypt at the time that we would put Joseph there. So it's the rabbinic imagination importing glass or some sort of shiny metal surface, but just to be technical, when we think about windows, it's not a glass, couldn't be a glass window, but again, this is in their mind, constructing the whole scene in any event. And But the Midrash says the image that got him to act was actually, he, he passed by something where he saw his own image. He saw his own reflection in the window or in the metal, which strongly resembled that of his father. And so in other words, we can say it was almost like a selfie of Joseph on the spot taken on site, reminded him of who he was, where he came from, right? That the, the resemblance to his father that sort of stopped him in his tracks, reminded him of his core values, of his core beliefs. And in fact, it was the image and, and nothing else, right? It was the image according to this interpretation that gets him to stop, that gets him to act. The pathos there is what moves him. In this case, it doesn't move him to act, it moves him to refrain from acting, but the refraining from acting is right, the act in and of itself that we hold up as the value. So we have this sort of core identity and belief that is, is being, Joseph is being reminded of by that picture, by that image. Um, just as an aside, the Rabbi Soloveitchik in the beginning of his book, Ish HaHalacha, right, uses this text in the Talmud as an epigraph and um, as if to suggest it's the image of his father that's inspiring his work. So in the opening of that book, he quotes this section from the Talmud, again, conjuring that sense that in an, an image, an actual image, not just with the consciousness that my father is here, but an actual image is what inspires, um, inspires this work. That is kind of the opening text to give us a sense of where in the Talmud might we see power of imagery in the same way that Sontag and Barr talk about pathos and movement, we see it in this text of Joseph in Potiphar's house. The next 
theme, and we'll move to, through two more themes pretty quickly and then uh, spend a bit more time on the last one. The next theme that uh, I'd like to explore briefly that thinks engages with the questions of, um, of values and community is what I call democratization of experience. And again, we'll briefly start with two quotes from photographers and then weave our way into a verse from the Torah and a midrash on that verse. So Robert Adams, a famous American landscape photographer in, uh, in, a, in an essay, Why People Photograph, says, at our best and most fortunate, we make pictures because of what stands in front of the camera to honor what is greater and more interesting than we are. We never accomplish this perfectly, though in return, we're, we are given something perfect, a sense of inclusion. Our subject thus redefines us and is part of the biography by which we want to be known. Right, so here, Adams is talking about that sense of inclusion that is a result of either taking the photograph, being in the photograph, or viewing the photograph. He doesn't actually articulate it here, but we can think of, well, I see something I haven't actually experienced, but there is a sense that I'm not so distant from the event that took place. And similarly, Sontag in On Photography says, even for such early masters who used the camera as a means of getting painterly images, the point of taking photographs was a vast departure from the aims of painters. From its start, photography implied the capture of the largest possible number of subjects. Painting never has so imperial a scope. The subsequent industrialization of camera technology only carried out a promise inherent in photography from its very beginning, to democratize all experiences by translating them into images. Right, so what's being articulated here is the sort of the, the advent of popularization of photography brought with it and brings with it an unbelievable scale today, but brought with it right, the possibility of shared experiences and therefore a sense of inclusion. And I no longer have to travel somewhere to even get a glimpse of what the Parthenon looked like. I can actually just see a picture and have a sense that like I am part of this. Now, for better, for worse, right? Like going somewhere is obviously going to change you in fundamental ways that seeing a picture won't. But yet, right, we buy photography books all the time. We have a sense of I want Right, there's that quest and that spirit of wanting to be included in part of the discussion and the experiential dimension. Um, and nowadays, right, with high tech and globalized world, we are sharing experiences all the time at an unfathomable rate, and in fact, causing all kinds of issues in terms of, uh, you know, changing of dynamic and the way we think about the world. So it does have tremendous downsides, which I'm not engaging with today, but those are, right, they're looming, they're big questions. But these questions of, we want you to feel that you are included and yet you're part of something, again, are actually core to anybody who's trying to build a community or trying to build um, a movement. And here we'll have a look at a verse, a pasuk from Dvarim, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 13. And the context here builds upon similar themes, right? The context here is, um, is a covenant at the plains of Moab, the renewal of the Brit at Arvot Moab, the plains of Moab. Although there's a similar sentiment expressed about um, Har Sinai, Mount Sinai. So this is about a particular covenant, although it also, there is a similar idea expressed when we think about the giving of the Torah. 
Okay, and the verse there says, again, this is about some affirmation of experience. The verse there says, Right? The verse reads, God saying, not with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him or them, we should say, but with them that stands here with us this day before God, and also with them that is not here with us this day. Right? And the sensibility there in the verse is that the covenant is an everlasting one, right? The covenant is not just with whoever is physically there, but the covenant is one that is with the entirety of the Jewish people for all generations to come. And the Midrash on this verse says, and my apologies, I seem to not have included it in English. I apologize for that. I will read it in the Hebrew, but I'll explain it. And um, commenting on this verse, right, the Midrash kind of looks at a discrepancy because the first half of the verse, if you see, it says the covenant and the oath is with them that stands here with us today before God. And then the second half says, and also with them that is not here with us today. And there's an omission. It's not parallel. The second half of that verse does not say with them that is not standing here today, right? That word is not there. It's there in the first part of the Pasuk. It's not there in the second half of the Pasuk, which prompts the Midrash, right? This is sort of the later interpretation looks for things like that in the psukim to jump on and interpret. And so in this case, the Midrash says, commenting on those words, specifically, below itchem levadchem, and not with you, ela af hadorot ha'etzidin lavo hayusham ba'ota sha'a. And I'll read the ends. Lefi sha'a nishamot hayusham va'adayin guf lo nivrah, so it's saying because the word standing is omitted, it's actually telling us that all of the nishamot, the spirits were there, meaning this covenant is with all future generations, all future members of the covenantal community, and that's an important statement for the Midrash to make, right? There is, there is a sensibility, there is... Um, an insistence reflected in the Midrash that all members of the covenantal community, all Jews of all generations were present at the renewal of this covenant, of this Brit, here the plains of Moab, but also at Har Sinai. And again, Chazal, the rabbinic imagination, realized the power and importance of saying that somehow we have all shared in that experience. Now, again, it's not through a photograph. There is no photograph, but it's the same value. It's the same sensibility. We take a picture to give a sense of inclusion. We'll show a picture to give a sense of inclusion. And, you know, we're not going to talk about cropping at length, but I will just say, why is it so important often when a family member is missing at a, at a wedding, at a bar mitzvah, at a event to crop them in afterwards they weren't there they know they weren't there you know they weren't there but there is a sense of there is an important value of saying we have all shared in this experience and so when we put that picture up on the wall or when we put it in our album we actually want you even though you were on the other side of the world to feel that you were part of it you were included there's authenticity through the fakeness, which is really interesting, right? Like this is not it, it, in the ways that we have available to us today. Again, 
potential for terrible danger, right, of what we crop in and crop out, right? It's a much, much larger discussion. But the value of saying, we want you to feel as if you were there is something that's in our contemporary digital photography, we think about all the time. And of course, right, looking at that as a value, my interest and our interest is kind of going back to the sources and saying, well, did Chazal have that same sensibility and same sentiment? Um, it seems to be a very deeply rooted value in the rabbinic imagination. And when we think about all kinds of values in, in Jewish law and practice, and I'll just give one example. When we think about the night of the Seder, right? We are, we are obligated to see ourselves in that visual context as if we left Egypt, right? We say it in the Haggadah of Pesach, and Maimonides actually tweaks the language a little bit and says, you're not just obligated to see yourself, you're actually obligated in the reflexive to demonstrate as if you yourself left Egypt, which is why we have the whole elaborate night of the Seder, right? But in so many ways that draws, at least in my thinking, on, on the power of the imagery, crafting an image, including an image. We have so many symbols at our Seder to be able to say, you were there, you were part of this and you have an obligation actually to demonstrate, to, to craft the picture, to take the picture, to crop it, to do whatever you need to do so that you have internalized that sensibility of, um, of inclusion. And it's important in this source to show us it's an important and Chazal insist that every Jew thinks and all you know, generations after will, will have that sense of, I was present at this covenant and I am part of this covenantal community, like we have with right, the democratization of experience through the power of the visual and the image. Which leads to a, a very different sensibility when we think about imagery, which is ambiguity and multiplicity of meaning, which is the next theme, which we'll briefly look at, um, because this is something that we think about and we see all the time when we think about Torah and its many, many layers. And so for here, I'll just quickly read from Sontag yet again, our third you know, overarching theme where she talks about photographs and says, photographs which cannot th themselves explain anything are inexhaustible invitations to deduction, speculation, and fantasy. And similarly continues later on, and I'll just read the last line. And again, you have this all in the sources. You can, you can read it in its entirety afterwards. She says, the more numerous the variations of something, the richer its possibilities of meaning. Right? Reading this inherently brings to mind the beauty in the many, many facets of Torah, right? as well as Chazal's understanding of the multiplicity of meaning and the invitation to deduction. And for this, there's so many different sources when we think about Torah and its many facets and all the different dimensions and the idea that we are to be engaged in the art of, of uncovering the beauty and the ambiguity to get to the rich interpretations and the many dimensions. So the same way that a photograph and particularly portrait photographers who tweak you know, light 
to give us that sense of mystery and ambiguity so that we would then be invited to deduce and deconstruct a photograph. Right? In many ways, that value, so too, right, is embedded in Jewish wisdom, Jewish tradition, and Jewish sources. And here there's, you know, there's many sources I just selected, a couple of them. The first is uh, from Sefer Yirmiyahu, Book of Jeremiah, Perich of Yom Pasuk Chaptat, chapter 23, verse 29, where he says, God is saying, isn't my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? And the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud in Masechet Shabbat reflects on that verse on the words like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces and says, Just as a hammer shatters rocks into many sparks, so every single word that goes forth from God is divided into 70 languages, right? The idea that a picture speaks volumes and can be interpreted in a multiplicity of ways is something that is very core to the idea of a verse, right? Of Torah, of our homiletic interpretations, of words of God that can be interpreted in so many different ways. Um, and just one more source on this from the Jerusalem Talmud. So we're looking at the Babylonian Talmud. Here's a source from the Jerusalem Talmud. And I'll just read this in English. It says, if the Torah had been given clear cut, there would not be a leg to stand on. What's the reason? In order that the Torah be interpreted with 49 reasons to rule that something is impure and 49 reasons to rule that something is pure, right? So that's similar ideas ex expressed in the Jerusalem Talmud here, meaning the ambiguity is actually intentional for the very reason that ambiguity affords us the opportunity for reflection, for deduction, for clarification through a very thoughtful and creative interpretation. Again, connecting with photographers, and, and I'll you know put out some names, portrait photographers, contemporary photographers that work with assembling and, and disassembling narratives and images. There are photographers like um, Adi Ness and Eleanor Carucci who, who you know, engage with a lot of questions of intersectionality and the interconnectedness of social categorizations, race, class, gender, and do so through as a, a ambiguousness of the images and bringing kind of a stylized medium of light and filters bring out the qualities in the images that underscore the differences and then invite you to deduce right invite you to interpret and um, they're using the same craft but to entirely different ends and that ambiguity is something that we find is central to textual interpretation right things are intentionally ambiguous presented in different ways subject to different readings and interpretations inviting us to then do the hard work of interpretation three kind of themes again each one of these can be developed in in many many different avenues many different ways many different dimensions but kind of wanted to put those three themes as our core before we move to the fourth right the, third, the first was just general power of the image the democratization of experience through an image and the invitation to deduce which are themes that are core in photography and themes that are core in our Judaic lens value-based approach. Um, and the final kind of 
text that we'll look at engages with a question that feels very, very raw, right, at our moments and the contemporary society that we're living in, which is what I call curating an image of perfection. Um, and for this, actually, we'll go straight to looking at, I'll just bring you right here, um, a narrative. Right? Before we talk about the curation of the image, I want to read from the Babylonian Talmud again in Masachet Ta'anit, Tractate Ta'anit 24b. And this narrative invites us to think about curation and perfection and stylizing and putting up a front in ways that we see um, in, in very scary ways, as we see also just kind of affecting the mental health of our youngsters today while the world is right in, in that mode. This curation is actually something that I found or thought about when we read this narrative. So we're gonna read two, two paragraphs of this Agatha, this narrative, and then close up with some questions um, on this in particular. So what we have here is um, our final text, which is a story, and the story is in the Talmud. It falls within a sequence of stories about a particular first century Jewish scholar in the Galilee, um, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, who is a series of stories that talk about his family grappling with, um, with poverty and, and and their own faith. Uh, he was highly praised and well known for his prayers being answered with miracles, but he and his family were, were very poor. And here's where we have um, the Gemara. I'll read it a little bit in Aramaic, a little bit in English, depending on time, maybe we'll, we'll probably just go to the English. That Amarav Yehuda Amarav. Bechol yom vayom, bat kol yotzeit veomeret, kol haolam kulo, nizon bishvil chanina bini. The Chanina Bini, Dayo Bekav Charovim, Erev Shabbat, Erev Shabbat. The Gemara discusses Rabbi Chanina Ben Dosa and the miracles that he performed. And Rabbi Huda said, quoting Rav, each and every day a divine voice emerges from Mount Choriv and says, The entire world is sustained by the merit of my son Chanina Ben Dosa. And yet, for Chanina, my son, a Kav of Caribs, a very small amount of, of inferior food is sufficient to sustain him for an entire week from one Shabbat Eve to the next Shabbat Eve. So kind of opening this narrative in a series of narratives, just showing how poor Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa was, and yet because of his merit, so many other people were able to merit to have food. The Gemara relates, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa's wife, would heat the oven every Shabbat Eve and create a great amount of smoke due to embarrassment to make it appear that she was baking, despite the fact that there was no bread in her house. So it tells us, right, that Rabbi Hanina Bendosa's wife, which is fascinating, we can talk about her for a long time, and um, she doesn't have a name, we don't know who she is, we do know that right, she was embarrassed. He may have, the world may have merited because of his righteousness, but at the end of the day, they had nothing to eat, and she was embarrassed. So what did she do? She would heat her oven every Shabbat, put wood inside, and just generate smoke due to that embarrassment to make it appear that she was baking, despite the fact that there was no bread in her house. And the Gemara relates and says, she had a certain evil neighbor who said to herself, now I know that they have nothing. What then is all this smoke? She went and knocked on the door to find out what was in the oven. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa's wife 
was embarrassed and she ascended to an inner room in Dorona, right? She goes to the inner room. And what happens then when the neighbor is there, right? The voyeuristic neighbor who comes next door and says, I know that these people have nothing. I'm just gonna agitate her and sort of stoke and see what is all this smoke about? What happens? The Talmud tells us a miracle was performed for Rabbi Hanina ben Zosa's wife as her neighbor saw the oven filled with bread and the kneading basin filled with dough. She said to Rabbi Hanina's wife, calling her by name, so-and-so, so-and-so, right? Tom doesn't even tell us the name. It's a sense of lack of dignity. She doesn't even have that. Um, she says, bring a shovel as your bread is burning. She said to her neighbor, I too went inside for that very purpose. Meaning, right, she's covering up why she ran inside. She's like, oh, okay, I went to get the shovel because I knew that there was going to be bread there. Right? Atana taught she too had entered the inner room to bring a shovel because she was accustomed to miracles and anticipated that one would occur to spare her embarrassment. The, the narrative continues. I'm going to stop it here because, um, because of time so we can open up for questions. I want to point out a few things about this narrative and why I brought it in for our discussion of curation of imagery, right? We have a narrative here, which engages with questions of the portrait of perfection that we need or want to project to the rest of the world, right? Nowadays, pretty much everyone who holds a device in their hands can crop, can filter, can airbrush to enhance their reality. And, and we want to present that sense of a perfectly curated life. It's easy to offer that life or that picture of a life without any challenges. But the ramifications of that are very, very deep. And they're a very deep concern for our youth in particular. And I'm very sensitive to those questions. It's a, another conversation that I think we can have. But what we see in this narrative is actually that desire to put up a haze of smoke and that desire to create that image of perfection is deeply rooted in our core experience as humans, right? As we see in this narrative of a righteous woman who for all intents and purposes, right, is of a high standing in terms of, you know, through her husband, not through herself. And yet she knows that she's being watched, right? There's this voyeuristic neighbor. We're told that she, you know, the Talmud tells us it's this evil neighbor that's looking at her. And so what she does is that an otherwise righteous woman is actually prompted to, to be deceptive, to put all of this wood in her oven so that there's a haze of smoke to give the perception, to offer the picture, that perfectly curated and stylized picture that on Arab Shabbat, I'm baking all this bread, right? She was so embarrassed and she wanted to put up that sense of perfect, you know, domestic image, even though they were probably starving, right? And the Talmud tells us they really didn't have very much food to eat. And, and this gives the appearance that she's baking, even though she's not um, actually baking. And so we have that, the eye of the neighbor, the outsider looking at us, the sense of the things that we'll do, an otherwise righteous woman will do in order to put up and to curate that perfect imagery. And it's very often to preserve a sense of dignity, right? To keep up appearances. In this case, she's filtering her life. She's curating an image of perfection and that conceals her reality. And even though her, you know, her husband, her partner was of great renown, he was well-respected, they were mired in poverty. And yet she feels a certain social pressure to project an image of looking perfect. Um, and the fact that the neighbor in the Talmud is described as evil 
sort of points to the fact that the wife of Rabbi Hanina Bendosa here is under observation and not from a sympathetic ally. And I think in many ways we can we can all sort of relate to that sense of feeling judged rather than supported, watched by particular eyes that are taking pleasure in hardships. And, and you know, the moment that we're in social media sort of expands the opportunity for such voyeurism indefinitely. And so instead of getting up and saying, I don't have food, right? She was a woman of the community who presumably could have gone to the community and said, these are my vulnerabilities. I don't have anything to eat. We don't have anything to eat. I know that the whole world merits because of my husband's righteousness, but at the end of the day, I don't have food. And um, she doesn't do that. And ultimately, I would say she, she kind of like reaches a breaking point and there's a miraculous ending to this story. And I'm sorry, we're running through it for a time. I wanna open up for questions, but this miraculous ending to the story kind of provides a protection from her shame rather than physical sustenance, right? Like there's a miracle that the, the smoke turns and there's bread in the oven and they have what to eat. But actually the way I read this story is she's now, she's not shamed. She doesn't have to come to her neighbor and say, my oven is actually empty and there's just wood inside. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of points to take away from this narrative. Keeping up appearances is sometimes just too much to handle, right? Might we just be better off or might she have just been better off by letting go and sort of allowing the forces beyond her control to take over? And we curate our lives and present the highlights of our, of our lives, but, but at what point does it become deceptive, right? This is a narrative that actually prompts us to think about at what point might we be, prom be prompted to deceive and, and the miraculous ending of the narrative, um, the, the miracle actually perpetuates the deception, which is, is a really interesting thing to think about in terms of the, right, the rabbinic mind and imagination. And had she been better off just sort of letting go and saying, yeah, it's empty. And like, there isn't this sense of a miracle. We, we have to actually come forward with our vulnerabilities, post pictures of our mess in our, I'm showing you the rest of my house, you would see the mess, right? Like, it's real and and perhaps I mean I have a lot of you know open up for you for questions when we think about this narrative does it do justice or disservice to that sense of well should we be putting up a haze of smoke or actually showing our vulnerabilities and what is real and I'll just end with a couple of questions for you and maybe that will open up no sorry into conversation Ooh, whoops which is, where is this? Okay, let's just get to the questions at the end, specifically about this narrative, but I think they can relate to all questions when we think about curation. Um, in what ways might one put across an image which conceals something, whether to disguise our true feelings out of humility or shame, right? What might prompt us to do that? How does this particular narrative, the Gemara in Ta'anit, resonate in an age of curated and stylized images that abound? And how do other people's standards influence us? Are there any advantages to be won by portraying an outwardly together image? Actually, right, that presses back against the narrative where we could say, well, maybe there is an advantage to be won by, by placing something out to the public that isn't entirely 
authentic. And finally, what might prompt us to come forward publicly with our vulnerabilities and needs? In this story, the wife of Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa does not come forward publicly with her vulnerabilities and needs. And yet it prompts us to think about, well, what might have forced her to do so? Maybe a neighbor who was raped more um, empathetic instead of saying, oh, there's smoke there and I know that they don't have any food, but perhaps the Talmud is actually giving us a sense of the neighbor as being evil. You should have come forward and said, I know you don't have food, here's food, instead of highlighting vulnerabilities. Um, and so this narrative creates all kinds of questions. I think probably we could have spent the entire time slowly reading and unpacking the narrative. And personally, I hope we'll be invited, I hope I'll be invited back so that we can you know, think of each one of these dimensions and issues um, in more developed ways, but I did want to kind of present it as questions that feel contemporary, that are being engaged with in the contemporary world by philosophers and scholars are actually in so many ways, deeply, deeply rooted in our text. Sometimes it's them figuring out where they come from and how we can, we can kind of have them in dialogue with one another. Um, and with that, awesome. I will stop talking and allow you to ask some questions. Uh, so, so brilliant to combine this Torah and these, these philosophical questions and our modern predicaments. We would love to open the conversation to, to the Hevra here uh, to hear some questions that you might have for, for Shira today. Please unmute yourself. Well, there's this cool, this is Joan. There's this cool meme going around Facebook that someone sent to me. And you see a mirror and in the mirror, there's a reflection of this beautiful apple. And in front of the mirror is the front of this beautiful apple but the back of the beautiful apple is all eaten and rotten. And the point is the images you see on social media are really just the front of the apple. No one's going to show the rotten part in the back. I guess, amazing, thank you for, you know, for giving us a very practical example of where we see these sort of lofty, looming questions. Like we see them all the time. And, and I guess my question back for you, Joan, and for anyone is, um, first of all, why? we do that and what would prompt us to do something otherwise like and here i think this story is a way to say the talmud and, and here's where like the values piece like if we were thinking along those lines and saying yeah we should show the back of the apple no matter what then i would have expected the end of this story to be the neighbor sees that there is no food in the oven. There's just a haze of smoke. There's just wood being burned. And perhaps that would have been a way for the, for right there. Again, this is the rabbinic mind crafting a story in whatever way that it, right? It wants to give a valuable lesson. And what it actually is doing is saying, no, there was a miracle that like was enabled her to preserve images. So actually the narrative is, is, not seeing show the back of the apple, which I think is really interesting in terms of right, prompting us to show our realities. Actually, there may, might be something to, to say, you are a community leader, maybe you have to keep up that image. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? I, I have bigger issues with the story that have nothing to do with the image, like why God would make this man so prestigious and give him all these miracles and not the one he needs, which is food. You know, he's benefiting the whole community, but not himself. So my problem with the story has, has unfortunately nothing to do with your talk. <laughs> I mean, no, wonderful. I think the truth is it really invites like each one of these. And this is what I love about Talmudic narrative is that um, they invite great discussion and and 
commentary and prompting of all kinds of questions. And yes, it's not a very long story. And I mean, it actually continues with um, more miracles where God gives to them in the present moment. And it's, you know, a continuation of discussion. And again, you have that source you can, you can see and their daughter gets involved. This was just a brief taste of the narrative, but it does all kinds of questions. I mean, I think of this story and I say, I think apart from the image, but maybe it relates to the question of the image, we have a woman in this narrative who presumably is the, you know, doing much in ancient society, doing the work, doing what needs to be done to maintain the household. Her husband enjoys the prestige, right? He's the one that the Talmud opens and gives this whole series of stories. It's not just this one, but it's a whole series of stories that says, oh, because of Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, all of these miracles occurred. Well, what about the woman who's standing by his side, right? Like he might be okay to say, I could live a life mired in poverty. I don't need anything um, because I have prestige, but you can't eat prestige. So your daughter and your wife are going to be suffering in a case. So it, it is a whole other dimension of questions, but it does relate to the imagery of that would then sort of prompt you to, to put up days of smoke and present an image that's inauthentic because you're not necessarily getting right the sustenance in any way the physical sustenance or the the sort of spiritual or the prestige that that he gets so Joan you are absolutely right that this one short narrative invites all kinds of discussions apart from the imagery one anybody else want to jump in uh Shira Mike Michael hi Michael yes Shira you probably could expect such kind of question because when you're talking about imagery from traditional Jewish tradition perspective, it's always you have this uneasy relation between categories of image and prohibition in terms of idolatry, right? And I'm not going back to the textual criteria. Certainly we have not easy relation between textual criteria and, and our perceptional emotional perception. But there is something deeper. If you create any image, whatever it's painting, sculpture, modern uh, photograph, you fix it, you catch the moment. You make, as you mentioned, image of perfection. Just specific example. For example, Julia put her comment, she had image of a desert mountain. She can create this photo and put on her wall or she has choice to go each day to enjoy again and again. You, you got this question, how you would define this kind of relationship? Yeah, I think, I think, Michael, thank you so much for raising so many important issues, right? The question of iconography and creating images of God, right? There is that ambivalence. We're, this is not at all within the scope of what I was engaging with today, but absolutely there is at, Right, the core of Judaism, that ambivalence, discomfort, deeply rooted also in prohibitions. We're not allowed to create an image of God in particular ways. And so perhaps that then seeps into a more general ambivalence with image with any images which were not necessarily prohibited from from creating. Um, that's sort of what I hear. One sort of strand in your comment is that sense of ambivalence then plays, which stems from prohibition, then plays out in all different ways in terms of our relationship with images in general. Um, and the second strand, which I hear you, you, you articulating, is um, the static nature. 
right? Like the idea of the text, and here I'll relate to the questions of the text as being, you know, an, an oral tradition um, in many ways, because we want it to have that sense of evolution and development and articulation and discussion and commentary. And the moment that something is written, it is captured, it's one dimensional, we lose a sense of that evolution and that process. And so related right to imagery, related to text, related to capturing, there is this sense of, well, the Jewish tradition in so many ways is one that is so beautifully evolving. The moment we capture it, right, and we just have the mountains and that picture of it, and we don't actually see the gradations of sun as they hit upon the mountains, that actually takes away something very, very real about the experience. So those, again, thank you so much for raising their questions that relate both to imagery and relate to our engagement with, um, with the text with tradition and with our experiential dimension in the world of how we right how we experience the world it is not in a static one dimension right we want it to be um, creative and and evolving in, in so many ways i saw Great. there was okay our last one, question uh, here is from julia Great. Hi, yes um i was wondering how either what we talked about today or the things that we didn't even get to cover inform your own work as or how you um display or don't display um, your own your own work as a photographer. <laughs> yeah, such a great question. Thank you so much. I um, I really for me, photography is it's like a diary, right? It's it's the way I perceive the world, the way I narrate the world for my own experiences. And I don't, I mean, even if you look at my house, I don't have a lot of photography up on the wall at all. Well, we don't have any space because we have too many books, but right, there is not a lot of photography. I share on Facebook and Instagram because I just love, right? I share many, many pictures. That's my kind of like diary to the world. This is what's going on. This is how I perceive. I have, um, I, I love it because I think it enables a sense of like wonder and experiential dimension. I'm not a professional photographer, so I don't have to worry or be concerned with any kind of, um, you know, just what an exhibit would look like or the piecing together. I will say that I have used and do use photography in my teaching in many ways, um, specifically to highlight and trigger certain dimensions that that the cerebral or the intellectual or reading a text just wouldn't. So for example, I did a series on sacred space um, for, for a fellowship and I created like a series of, of images to prompt, right, to be used specifically for teens or educators to prompt a lot of the questions about sacred space, right, hierarchies and, and multidimensionality, but through the pictures that I took. And so that way it was, you know, a series, I'm happy to, it's actually online at M squared Institute of Experiential Education with a series of prompts and questions where photographs can then allow us a window into other questions and other pedagogical avenues, right? Because so much of education is, um, is textual, and we know we have such differentiated modes and modalities of learning. So a big passion of mine is actually, yes, I am like reared in the world of the text. And yet, how can we kind of figure out all the other dimensions to raise questions? So a short answer is I use photography educationally. I share it publicly because I love to. But, um, but really, it's at that core of how can we engage with with the world, our values in ways that are creative and artistic, and yet intersect with 
the intellectual and, um, and traditional realm. So I hope you were able to see some of that intersection here, just a taste. Uh, and, and I would love to continue, you know, continue the conversation in different, in different venues. Amazing, Shira. We look forward to learning with you again at Valley Bait Midrash. And thank you for this fascinating um, presentation today. So much to think about. God bless. Wishing everyone a great day. Okay, take care, everyone. I have your images with me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.